Welcome to Great Minds for this very special in-person record, which is always uh, our preference. And with us today is a longtime dear friend. We met many, many years ago, Linda, I think when you were with AOL. Yes, absolutely. And uh, now a member of the Emerald Board, was the chief provocateur way back when in the deal that ultimately brought Advertising Week to Emerald. So we'll talk about that also. And thank you again for that and connecting me to David and Hervé and everything's working out just so wonderfully. Uh, but with us today is Linda Clarizio. So a heartfelt welcome. Thank you. Really, really happy to be here, Matt, and here in person. Indeed. The old indeed. fashioned way. <laughs> exactly right. So Linda, there are so many places to start with you. Such an interesting career, um, all your recent work uh, on various boards and uh, supporting growth. We're going to talk a lot about the 98, which was really the catalyst for our conversation today. But I thought it might be inter interesting to look back to 1999 and start with one of your many not-for-profit organizations that you're involved with. I think you're still the vice chair today of Human Rights First. That's right and start our conversation with Human Rights First. Okay, so um, that actually starts before 1999. My first job out of law school, out of Harvard Law School, was actually in the U.S. State Department, and at the time I was assigned to legal affairs in Africa, and I was traveling quite a lot around Africa and South Africa. Time was, was a big issue in America, you know, as it was you know, throughout the world. The apartheid regime was still in force in South Africa, and I got very involved in the U.S. government effort to provide sanctions against South Africa. And while I was working at the State Department, I met this organization, which was then called the Lawyers Committee for Human Rights, and they had done a lot to expose atrocities and of the apartheid regime in South Africa. And I really was impressed with the quality of their work and what they were doing to you know, really inform the world about what was going on. So when I left the State Department and subsequently joined this law firm, Arnold & Porter, where I worked for many years, I was actually one of, the, one of the early female partners there, I got involved with the Lawyers Committee for Human Rights, and we then renamed it Human Rights First, really helping them sort of continue their mission. And so that was actually well before 1999. Um, interesting story there. Um, I ended up becoming an expert on sort of unfair labor practices around the world, particularly uh, practices to employ children around the world against their will. I actually wrote some articles about that. And in the mid-1990s, I was actually put on a White House commission, uh, President Clinton, uh, Bill Clinton was then president, to try to work with American companies to make sure that when they went outside the U.S. and used factories outside the U.S., they didn't um, employ children and use unfair labor practices. So my involvement with Human Rights First goes back a long, long time. That's a great story. And your tenure going back to when you were the Department of State goes back, as you said, well before that. You started there about 1985. I started there in 1985. And the reason I did is, you know, I, I'm an American citizen. I grew up in America, but my family comes from Italy. I, I'm 100% Italian. And when I was growing up in New Jersey... My, the community that I grew up in was pretty much all Italian. So I actually, even though I was growing up in New Jersey, I thought everyone in America was Italian. <laughs> and when I then went to Princeton and Harvard Law School, I saw that that wasn't the case. But that really 
inspired in me this interest in sort of international affairs, and that's why the first job that I took out of law school was in the State Department. One of the things that I love to talk about is culture. Mm-hmm. And uh, my family also came from abroad way back when. Where? Had roots in Eastern Europe. Okay. Poland, actually. Okay. And my grandfather came through Ellis Island from mm-hmm. Russia. Uh, and there's something real and tangible, I think, about that immigrant work ethic. Talk about that. And I love that you said you thought everybody was Italian. So my grandfather uh, came to America in the uh, late 1920s. Actually, he he was escaping. I mean, he was a communist in Italy at the time, and he came to America because he didn't want to serve under Mussolini. Uh, Mussolini was enlisting Italian troops to go to, I think, then Ethiopia, and he didn't want to do that. So he came to America, and he started a business in America. He was actually an ice man. He used to deliver ice to people's houses. But he was also a politician, by the way, and he got very involved with a young politician in Newark, New Jersey, named Peter Rodino, who subsequently became a very powerful member of the House of Representatives. He headed the House Judiciary Committee that did the impeachment trial for Nixon. So he really sort of ingrained in me this interest in sort of hard work, but also in sort of serving in public service. And, you know, that, but again, but it was very, very much tied to Italy. And in fact, my grandfather came to the U.S. in the late 1920s. And then after my father was born, my grandmother hated it in the U.S. And they went back to Italy in the early 1930s, which was not a good time to be in Italy. And they stayed there for a few years and then came back again um, because of, you know, what was then sort of the impending World War II in Europe. So that's a little bit of my family's history. Amazing. And you must have been a high achiever of Princeton and Harvard. Um, where did that come from? Were you just really academically minded? So it's a great uh, New question. New Jersey, great place to it's grow up. It's a great up. question. So I grew up in this, as I said before, this very um, almost stereotypical Italian-American family in New Jersey. It's almost what you would see on a sitcom. And I was not raised to go to college or even to law school. I was, you know, I think raised to marry some Italian-American guy and have like nine children. <laughs> and so, and it, it's not that I didn't want that. But when I was growing up, I saw a lot of the women, the Italian-American women in my family, sort of just complain about their lives, that they had, they didn't have really control over their own income, they didn't have a means to make an income, and that always stuck with me, and I really always wanted to sort of make my own path and not be dependent on someone, and so when I was very young, I developed this idea that you know, you should be out there, you should get a good education, you should make sure you could have a good career, because you don't want to end up as a, you know, as an Italian woman, sort of just beholden to a guy in the kitchen all the time. Now, I'm not saying that to be, I love my Italian heritage, I love the food, I love everything about it. But, you know, if you look at the way women have been treated in Italy over the years, you know, it has not been that easy for now, now Italy has a has a female head of state, but it's been a long time coming. Were you the first in your family to go to university? Um, no, my father actually went to college. My father was an accountant. Um, I was definitely the first in my family to go to a place like Princeton. Right, right. Oh, boy, this is a, a great conversation. So let's talk about that early time you spent 
working for the Secretary of State and working for the Department of State in two separate roles, but all tied to Mm -hmm. Africa and South Africa. South Africa under apartheid, very, very different world. To me, the greatest miracle in history is the transition of power from the white majority under both and then de Klerk to the black majority led by Nelson Mandela. And we were just talking, I'm heading to London for the opening of Mandela the Musical in London. Uh, You were there seeing it on sort of both sides. Apartheid not quite winding down, but sort of getting nearish the end. Talk about the work that you did there. I mean, one of the things that was really important was how the world community came together to impose sanctions on South Africa. And that hasn't been done in a lot of other sort of conflicts in the world because it's, it's a hard thing to do. And it was controversial, by the way. And there were some people in America that didn't support that, some business interests that didn't support it. Uh, There was a law actually passed in 1985, right as I joined the State Department from Harvard Law School, which imposed sanctions against South Africa, and I got very involved in implementing that. Those sanctions that the U.S. imposed and the Europeans imposed did have a huge impact on sort of economically starving the South African government. So I do think it's one of the few examples where the world came together to make something happen. And we really haven't seen anything like that. Um, I was spent a lot of time in South Africa in the 80s, and it was a really, really stark place. Um, the white majority lived in these lavish homes that were largely gated communities. And then you would go into Soweto and these other, you know, these other parts of South Africa where the black community lived. And it was like night and day. I mean, it was literally night and day from beautiful roads to dirt roads, from plumbing to no plumbing. I mean, it was really, really stark. And it just struck you, how could a country so wealthy, you know, so wealthy, you know, not be dispersing that wealth in, you know, in a way that was equitable. So it did happen. I mean, it's been a journey there, as you know, but it's, it's, it's actually a remarkable thing. It would happen in South Africa. And today you see mixed race couples everywhere. Mm -hmm. Um, The legacy offenses in barbed wire in the suburban communities is still there. And center city Johannesburg today is not unlike, you know, parts of downtown LA, sad to say, or areas like the Tenderloin in San Francisco, where it's just really tough. And there's been a lot of flight, not just white flight, but black flight and business flight, cutting across race to the suburban areas, to Rosebank and Santon and Midrand and some of those areas. Um, but it's, a, it's an absolute miracle all these years later that that place is what it is, and I, mean, it, I, I, it, it I love is, it there. It, it is, but as you just said, there's still more that needs to be done. Uh, but it's, yes, it is. Yeah. There has been some progress there, but there's still more that needs and to be done. And enormous legacies of corruption uh, across the board, the load sharing, there's inadequate power. And every day, for a certain number of hours, the power goes down everywhere. And if you have money, you have a generator, and you don't miss a beat. If you don't have money in places like Soweto and the townships, they don't have power. So, yeah, very much a work in progress, but an incredible miracle. So you then make a leap to a law firm. Yes. uh, And end up having a pretty good run there and making partner at a really young age. Yes, I did. I went to Arnold & Porter, which is one of the premier law firms in Washington, D.C. Actually, the firm was started by 
three lawyers, uh, Arnold Porter and Abe Fortas, um, two of whom had been at the Nuremberg trials, by the way, they were lawyers at the Nuremberg trials, so the firm has sort of, has quite a storied history. And I went to Arnold and Porter, I mean, because it was an amazing law firm, but also it had a very strong commitment to public service and to pro bono service. And while I was there, you know, I was able to do a lot of pro bono work in addition to my corporate work. And it was a great, it was also one of the first firms to have women partners. And that was another reason that I joined the firm because I knew that I could find female mentors there, you know, that would help me as I was trying to progress in my legal career. I mean, at this point, there were still not very many women that joined major law firms, let alone became partner in those firms. So you can see some of the early seeds, even before you thought of the 98, you can see where those seeds were getting planted. Well, I've always, everything about my career, everything I've done in my career, Matt, I've always really been interested in helping advance women as leaders because I had people that helped me along the way, men and women, and it was not that easy to do in the 80s and the 90s. So everything that I've done in my career, I've also led women's organizations. I led the women's organization at AOL, at Nielsen, and at Arnold and Porter when I was there to try to help that. And that has sort of been what's led me to create the 98. And we can talk about that in a little bit. Absolutely. And I'm jumping around here a little bit, but you also it's hard had... when you've had a long career as I've had. So. You've had, that's a, that's a sign of health uh, and success. You also had a little tenure where you crossed into Israel. Um, so I went to work, yes. So I, I worked at Arnold and Porter for several years. My husband at the time was a U.S. diplomat, and he went to work in... Um, in Jerusalem. He was the political counselor in Jerusalem, and I went with him and worked at a law firm in Israel, where I was also the only woman, and interestingly, when I was there, I was the only Catholic in that law firm, and I was apprehensive to go to Tel Aviv, this place I didn't know anything about, but I have to say, when I went there, it was one of the best experiences of my life, because the firm was a small firm, and it was really run like a family, and the partners in the firm, I mean, they knew that I was unusual there, this Catholic woman, Italian Catholic woman in this law firm in Tel Aviv, they really wanted to make me feel welcome, and so at the end, it was almost like I became their daughter, and I really had, it's, the firm's called Herzog, Fox, and Neyman. It's still, it's actually now the biggest firm in Israel, or one of the biggest firms in Israel, so yeah, I spent two years there. And your background is so unusual, because not only do you have the law degree and the international diplomacy in your early foundational background, but I know you're still involved with Princeton today, and on the engineering side and the science side. So you've got grounding in a lot of different areas. I've always been a really curious person, and it's been good and bad, Matt, because I get, I get restless after a while, and I want to learn more, and I want to experience different things. And I do think that's a way to summarize my career, because I've had a career in law, in technology, in advertising, in data, and I've spanned occupations from being a lawyer to being a finance person to being a strategy person to being a salesperson to being a CEO and all of that has been because I, I really wanted to sort of experience different things and I didn't realize when I was doing it 
that that would make me a good CEO. Mm-hmm. But over, you know, you know, as I did different things over the years, it, it, it actually helped me a lot because I'd had a lot of different experiences that I, I could bring to things. But Princeton, so Princeton was a great, so why did I go to Princeton? So I, again, grew up, started out in Newark, New Jersey, in the old Italian section of Newark, New Jersey. And then we moved out to Verona, which is a sub, uh, suburb of of Newark, mostly with old Italian and Jewish immigrants, by the way, who had started out in Newark. And Princeton was very far from that. But when I was a little girl, we drove through Princeton at one point, it was 12, I was 12 years old, and it had just snowed there. And it looked like paradise. My kids still laugh. They said, you always describe Princeton like paradise. And it is a very beautiful place architecturally. And when I went, when I when I did that, I had this crazy idea in my head that I wanted to go to Princeton. And I went to my guidance counselor in high school, and I said, I want to go to Princeton. And she said, no one from this school gets into Princeton. I said, well, I am. And so that became a goal and an objective. And I did get into Princeton, first one in my family to go to a school like that. And Princeton was a wonderful place for me because it really opened the world for me just in terms of people I was able to meet, experiences I was able to have. And I felt, feel, I still feel like I owe a lot to Princeton. So now I'm on the board of the engineering school at Princeton. Why engineering school? I was actually an international economics major when I was at Princeton. Um, Princeton recruited me to the engineering school because of my career in ad technology and marketing technology. So Princeton wanted someone on the board that had experience managing engineering teams and product teams, you know, in an area that was changing and disrupting. And that's our world, ad tech and martech. So that's why I'm involved with Princeton at the engineering school right now. And the law degree was just to keep learning and set you up with a different skill set? I mean, I originally became a lawyer because I wanted to be an international negotiator. So that's And so I thought I was combining that by going to the State Department. And then when I went to my law firm, I started to work on international transactions and still be a lawyer. I stopped being a lawyer, not because it wasn't interesting, but I became more interested in what the business people were doing. When you're a lawyer on the transactional side, you're sitting next to business people who are doing deals and you're writing all the contracts for them. And I got more interested in the business side. Rather, I, you know, I became great at writing the contracts and I decided I really wanted to learn the business side. So that's when I flipped from being the lawyer sitting next to the business person writing the contracts to the business person myself. And that's when I left law and went to then AOL at the very beginning of the internet days. Okay, which we're going to get to. But 1999. Just, oh my gosh. So let's go back and just you know tie back to where we began uh, around human rights. Okay. There was a great piece that I watched over the weekend with John Oliver talking about laborers in Qatar. I, I saw that actually. And uh, how many count. died, how poorly they were treated. And FIFA and how they have not been like a responsible organization. Totally right? complicit. Mm-hmm. And early in my career, when the World Cup was in America in 94, mm-hmm. I was then executive director of the Sports Commission for New York oh, City. Oh, I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. And Randy Falco, who later had a tenure at uh, AOL. Yes, he was uh, my boss for a while. So mm-hmm. he was at NBC mm-hmm. way back then, ran the Olympics, and I was friendly with all those people. And uh, I dealt with FIFA and the U.S. Soccer Federation. They were all criminals. They were. And there's a great documentary on Netflix now, FIFA Uncovered, and one of the main protagonists, uh, main criminals who's gone now, 
is uh, a guy named Chuck Blazer, who I knew well. And uh, he was a complete crook. And all the way up to the top, Havilland, Bladder, all of them crooks. The guy who's running it now. But the state of human rights today, 2022, remains challenged. Talk about where human rights, watch where your organization, Human Rights First, has made progress and where is there still a lot of work to do? Well, the original focus of Human Rights First uh, was to expose human rights violations around the world. And certainly Human Rights First still does that. We then, and we originally did that ourselves. We were Americans that went to different parts of the world and wrote reports on you know, what was happening in different parts of the world to shed a light on what was going on. The digital revolution sort of changed that because it made it easier for people in their own countries to get information out. It made it easier for people to take pictures. Even taking pictures used to be a hard thing to do. Sure. Um, iPhones made it easier for people to do this in their own countries and to get that information out. I mean, look at what's happening now in China. You know, it used to be it would be hard right. to so even to get that information out. So to document and expose. Right. The game digital changed that digital game. Digital absolutely changed that. I mean, we were all a part of that. So now Human Rights First focuses more on trying to influence the U.S. government, because we are in the U.S., we are a U.S. organization, on changing its policies. So we were very, very involved, like during the Bush administration, when it was, we, we discovered that, like in Guantanamo Bay, it was Americans that were actually committing human rights violations on people that we were taking into custody. So then we were like, we have to turn this and look at our own country at some things that, are, that were going on. So we're still looking at things like that, but we're also sort of advocating for changes in laws and for the role of the U.S. government. You know, the U.S. has always viewed itself as a beacon for these issues, and but the U.S. gets conflicted sometimes on these issues. So to make sure that we're sort of constantly focusing the U.S. government to the extent we can on exposing human rights abuses and on making sure the U.S. is on the side, you know, of countries and of governments that are supporting human so rights. So I'm uh, as proud an American as anyone. I love our country. Uh, I'm not so sure that we're always... We're not always on, on the side. the good side of issues as much as we generally think we are. We're not. We're not. And again, that's that's where Human Rights First and other human rights organizations come in. I mean, often there's conflicting, you know, there are conflicting interests. There's economic interests, there's security interests. And sometimes those are valid. It's not that they're not valid. You have to balance them. I guess our perspective is when you're balancing those interests, you should always make sure that you're balancing it with sort of the human rights prism. I mean, that's who we are as Americans. I mean, this is how we started out as a country, and so we have to be true to that. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with you. And, you know, the definition of America, arguably, is all of us come from somewhere else. And the cruelty, and I'll reveal my politics quickly here, I don't want to get all political, but what the governor of Texas, who's disabled, which you would think would make someone more empathetic, not less empathetic, and I think we overuse that word a little bit, but it's certainly applicable here. Sending busloads to New York and Philly and Boston of people separating their families. Uh, what is, I don't, I can't imagine what I this mean, guy turning, is thinking. It's turning people into pawns. It's turning people into pawns. And look, there, there are some changes that need to be made to our, you know, 
our immigration laws to the asylum laws. Um, right. I mean, right now the cases are really backlogged. I mean, it doesn't make sense that it should take people years and years to get through the court systems, but that doesn't mean you should turn people into political pawns. Absolutely not. Um, And just one more thing about human rights. So the world of human rights has changed. I talked about how years ago people would write reports and it would just, they would smuggle photos out and now everybody has iPhones and people are just sending information all around the world. So one of the things we're doing at Human Rights First is trying to use digital techniques to sort of advance the cause of human rights. So let me just give you an example. We recently... um, were involved in in Ukraine in sending text messages to Russian soldiers on the ground in Ukraine, making them aware that their colleagues were committing human rights violations. And, you know, we were able to do that, sort of working actually with digital advertising firms that knew how to target them and to send those text messages to them in Russian. So that is something that wouldn't have happened 50 years ago, but we were trying to sort of influence them. So it's just an example of how Human Rights First is using different tactics now in 2022 than would have been used 50 years ago. I'm so glad that we we were able to talk about this. Uh, uh, Absolutely so important from so many vantage points. So you mentioned it. Uh, but let's dig into a long and successful run at AOL. AOL, yes, the first big internet company. It was a AOL was a wonderful place to be at in nineteen. So first, I started working with AOL as a lawyer in the mid nineties. I was one of their outside lawyers on a lot of the big deals that they did. And then they first begged me to join as a lawyer, which I refused to do. I was just made partner at this firm. It didn't seem like it was the right thing to do to leave. And so I stayed. But by 1999, they recruited me to actually run their corporate strategy group, their corporate development group. And at that point, I left. And it was an exciting time at AOL. We were the leading internet company. We had a stock that was high-flying stock on stock exchange, it seemed like we could do nothing wrong. And it was a very, very exciting place. I worked with amazing people and I learned a lot about digital advertising and marketing and everything, which I, which I still work, you know, which still influences me today. So who were some of the key competitors or players in the landscape? A lot have disappeared. A few have survived. But well, more, AOL more hasn't, disi- AOL, AOL hasn't survived, right? AOL yeah. hasn't survived. So, so first, when I was at AOL, we were our revenue was solely as an internet service provider, where it was all subscription-based revenue, and we had like CompuServe and some of these other companies as competitors. While I was at AOL, we started to develop an advertising business and to bring in advertising revenue, and Yahoo was actually always the leading player there. And as you know, AOL and Yahoo both ended up declining and now are merged and owned by Apollo. I mean, I, if you had told me back in 1999 that was going to be the fate, I would have said, like, no way, no right. way. Uh, but again, I was with at AOL first the transition from being, you know, just a subscription-based business to being an advertising-supported business. Someone told me that there's still a shockingly high number of people have AOL, who have AOL yeah. dial-up I do. I do. service. I, well, not dial-up. I still have my AOL email account. Right. Um, I don't know about dial-up service. There's still some parts of the United States where it's hard to get internet access. Yeah. But yeah, we were surprised when I was at AOL 
that there were people, when everything was free on the internet, there were still some people that kept paying AOL for internet access when it was cheaper at that point to get other services. Incredible. And you mentioned CompuServe, but who were some of those other brands who were players then it was who most, disappeared? It was Prodigy, CompuServe, and AOL were the three big internet service providers. And so do you remember AOL? So AOL's, AOL came into being because they cut deals with the telecom companies to give them access to their pipes. And when the phone companies had done those deals, they didn't really realize what they were doing. This is before the internet existed as we know. They were just cutting a deal with AOL for access to the pipes. And when those deals came up for renewal, they got tougher with AOL. And AOL was looking for other pipes. And that was the motivation behind the AOL Time Warner merger. Because by, you know, by 2000, AOL was having, and I was involved in some of those deal renegotiations with the likes of Bell Atlantic and Southwestern Bell. Again, these are, these, well, these companies have subsequently consolidated, but they were all sitting there saying, hmm, how did AOL create an internet business off of our backs, off of our pipes? We can do it ourselves. So then it went from AOL CompuServe Prodigy to AOL CompuServe Prodigy, Bell Atlantic, Southwestern, all of these phone companies that tried to get into the internet business themselves. And at that point, AOL had already merged with Time Warner, uh, so there's a different story behind that. But we were then switching gears to try to become more of an ad-supported business like Yahoo. So I want to go back to mm-hmm. a word that you use, the pipes, but let's talk about those early days of really the birth of advertising across our genre. Describe digital the landscape. Advertising's then. been around for well, a long uh, time. Did, right. <laughs> Thank you for correcting me. Digital advertising, but talk about Don't those early days. <laughs> um, I mean, it was interesting. The early days were you know, not that we were just selling advertising on AOL. It was just about selling banners. I mean, we still have banner advertising. It's still a big piece of the advertising world. And, you know, the, the AOL had the most audience of any internet company. So we had the highest ad rates. And originally they were just static banners that were right. produced in a very manual way. And over time we got better and better at sort of producing standardized units. I mean, AOL, you know, AOL really gave birth to the whole sort of digital advertising ecosystem. Amazing. And back then you had search and display, right? We had search and we had display and I was very involved actually in search. So I still remember in, you know, when the economy was, was, was starting to tank in sort of 2000, you know, early 2000s. You know, I was, I was at AOL and we were seeing ad rates going down and, you know, the people were withdrawing their ad, you know, you know, shrinking their ad spend. But there was one piece of AOL that was working from an advertising perspective and that was search. And I still remember someone on my staff came and said to me, what's this search thing? It's like going crazy. Um, people are really interested in buying search. It's more performance driven advertising. And we started to look at it and AOL was using an external company at that point to sort of manage a lot of its search advertising. And then we were approached by Google to sort of switch AOL search business to Google. And we had a huge, long debate at AOL whether we should launch our own search 
advertising because we saw that it was taking off like no other form of advertising. It was more accountable advertising. We didn't do it. We cut a deal with Google. It, we were the first external partner of Google uh, in terms of for their for their paid search business. And that ended up being like a key part of Google's early growth as a search company. So in retrospect, that was a mistake. Yeah. So I was really involved in it. And some of the books about AOL actually write about my involvement. I, you know, when we decided to do the deal with Google, I knew that we were going to really help put Google on the map. So I tried to get a really big equity stake in Google, not only do a commercial deal. And we did at AOL, actually, we got very substantial warrant coverage in Google as a result of that. So I was proud of that. However, all we did was make money from those warrants. You know, we didn't actually get into the business ourselves. You know, we allowed Google to basically build a business on our backs. Right. So right. do I regret it? Yeah, I do regret it. Yeah. Great story. And, and you referenced it uh, earlier as well, but tremendously talented people came out of that era at AOL and at Yahoo. And you can argue that those two companies, now part of one, as you said, under Apollo today, unimaginable back then, they were arguably the leading farm systems for talent Absol in our business. I mean, they still are, absolutely. I was, um, I mean, I worked with Steve Case. I was the deputy to Ted Leonsis at AOL. I feel like particularly, you know, Ted was my mentor. He taught me everything about business. He's, he's been an unbelievable, there were an unbelievable number of people, you know, that worked for Ted and Steve. Um, my, I, my last few years at AOL, uh, my, my peer was Jim Bankoff. You know, Jim and I were Ted's two deputies. Jim runs Vox Media now. I mean, so many amazing people came out of AOL. Worked for Jonathan Miller, Randy Falco, really great, you know, great CEOs. Learned a lot from all of them. And I think the same on the Yahoo side. And you, see, you tend to see more of the Yahoo people on the West Coast, which makes sense, but mm -hmm. absolutely. Yeah, great, great farm systems of talent. And many people still active in the business today, as you referenced. So let's talk about, go back to that a word you used earlier, the pipes. We start off on the phone lines, in effect. Mm -hmm. Eventually, it becomes the cable lines. Eventually, it becomes fiber optic cable. Mm -hmm. um, the amount of stuff, we'll use a simple word, that goes through the pipes today relative to 20 years ago is exponentially higher. All of us today mm -hmm. live in a streaming world, unimaginable back then that you could, when you used to spend so much time watching something spin just for a couple of words to come up, that you can now download the Godfather trilogy and watch it on your phone walking down the street, unimaginable. Give us a sense of where we were and where we are now you have the benefit of real perspective. I mean, we were, as I said earlier, we were just putting, you know, ads, static ads, words. It even took a while to get pictures because it get the pixelated, pixelation to the point where you could actually display pictures on the web. We were, it was just words on the web and we moved pretty quickly to video. And I do have to say, I want to say one thing about the AOL Time Warner merger because it's given a bad rap by a lot of people. Um, but in a lot of ways... It was one of the most visionary mergers ever, and I do, you know, Steve Case, you know, was the mastermind behind it. And when we did that merger in 2000, you know, Steve talked about a world where people would be consuming media, video, seamlessly across different platforms, across TV, you know, movies, the, you know, uh, 
computers and everybody was, it, that was just a vision at that point. And that is the world that we're living in today. I mean, the vision that he had in 1999 when the merger, well, 2000 merger was announced in January 2000, it was a correct vision. It was the correct vision of a media company that would produce video across different formats. It was just too early. And he was right completely. He was right, but the bet was wrong. The bet was wrong because there was not infrastructure and technology to support making that happen. This is what you were just saying. The, the, the technology wasn't advanced enough at that point to make that happen, to connect all those forms of media. And culturally, culture is hugely important. Time Warner was the wrong company to do it with AOL. So you needed the technology and infrastructure and you needed the culture. We didn't have either. We just had the vision. The vision itself was insufficient. See what I'm saying? Uh, there will be many, many more books written. But we've been talking, I mean, literally, you know, I've been involved for over 20 years in talking about this, and now we are living it from a consumer perspective. Yeah, no, it, uh, absolutely right. And, and there will have been books written and many more written about the whole series of mergers involving what was Time Warner, AOL Time Warner, now part of the Discovery family. The, the pieces uh, written recently about uh, AT&T's brief foray I read that article. into the yes. business, absolutely brutal. Yeah. One thing you have to understand about Time Warner, when Time War before AOL and Time Warner merged, Time Warner was run as a group of separate companies all under sort of one umbrella called Time Warner and the different divisions of Time Warner did not really work together. Um, it was, they each were judged separately. So when AOL merged with Time Warner and became part of that culture, that's not a good culture to drive collaboration. Um, you know, like one of the big examples, and I can't remember, you know, HBO, had their two big hit shows, The Sopranos and Sex in the City. And when those went off HBO and were, um, were re-ran re on cable, it seemed like it was natural that those would go to Turner because Turner was the cable network that was part of Time sure. Warner. But Time Warner's perspective at the corporate level was that it should go bid out to the highest bidder. And I can't remember, one of them got, I, I think Turner, can't remember if they got Sex in the City or HBO, but that seemed like illogical to me. Why wouldn't you just pipe that through your own systems? Yeah, I remember early on when we started Advertising Week around that time, 2004, John Partilla and Mark Darcy yes. were at Time Warner Global Marketing. And that was a hard organization because they were operating in that culture where everything was separate. Yeah, trying to get stuff done across. Right. It was Not very, easy. It was very, very hard to get done across. When I when I... When we did the merger with Time Warner, we tried to do a few things, and I was behind sort of two initiatives that AOL tried to do, and I think they're worth discussing. One was in sports, where we had this idea that Time Warner had a magazine called Sports Illustrated that had had a great run, but it mostly appealed to upper-middle-class white men, sort of suburban families, and we wanted to sort of bust apart Sports Illustrated and create a TV program that would also run on the internet that would be more like what ESPN sort of subsequently became, but we couldn't get the support to do that within Time Warner. Um, the other thing we wanted to do was we were attracted to this idea which subsequently became reality TV, and we wanted to launch a dating 
program on television, a magazine about dating, and an online dating system on AOL um, that would basically bring everything together about online dating so that people could share their experiences. Now, that's today. That's reality TV today, sure. Match.com, all those things. Again, none of these initiatives we were able to get go. They all sound great today. They make a lot of sense. But the way AOL Time Warner was structured, it was really, really hard to get it to happen. It's it's almost like in the United States saying, let's get New York and Texas and California to work together on an initiative. Right. They have right. very, very different. Um, it's, so a lot of culture is super important in a company. And AOL Time Warner was really three entities because Time Inc. Absolutely. had its own culture and Warner. And Warner had its and own Turner. Culture. Remember, Turner sure, had been yeah. a huge sort of jolt in their system. Now, none of it exists anymore, so I don't know what that says. I worked uh, at CNN Center when I was in college as an intern at the Atlantic Chamber CNN of Commerce. CNN was a huge upstart. Huge. And I knew Ted Turner. He was very good to me as a young man. I had written the bid. Remember the Goodwill Games? Mm-hmm. So I wrote the bid when I was very young. I was director of the Sports Commission when I was 23, 1987. And we originally wanted the Olympics for New York. And when Atlanta, ironic, because I was, that's where I Did New York interned. come close to getting the No, no, okay. we never got a chance to bid. So I was an intern at the Atlanta Chamber of Commerce, and one of the stories that I covered for the Atlanta Chamber Report mm-hmm. was something called the Sports 2000 Task Force. Mm-hmm. And it was a group of business leaders in Atlanta who vowed to make Atlanta a sports capital. Mm-hmm. And that group ultimately, and a guy named Billy Payne emerged as a key player, uh, and they were the group that brought the Olympics to Atlanta. Atlanta won because the vote was taken in 1989 for the 96 Games, which was supposed to be Athens, Greece, mm-hmm. the Centennial Games. And the vote was taken right after the Korean Games in 88. And there were a lot of political concerns, you may recall, around North Korea. That's right. And mm-hmm. misbehaving and ruining, you know, impacting the, the Games in South Korea. And so the IOC was skittish. And Athens was, and Greece was politically unstable at that time. So Atlanta was a safe choice. It would have gone to Toronto, but there were eight or nine Canadians who didn't want the games in Toronto protesting outside the IOC hotel. And they mistook that for widespread opposition Mm -hmm. in Toronto. Mm -hmm. So Atlanta got the games. That knocked us out. So I looked around and said, is there anything else worth bidding on? And the Goodwill Games, which Ted Turner had started as a real visionary to bridge the Olympic boycotts because the Soviets didn't go to the 84 Games in L.A. as payback to us, the West, including the U.S., Mm -hmm. of course, for boycotting the 80 Summer Games in Moscow. Ironically, we were protesting the Soviet Union invasion of Afghanistan. And years later, who was in Afghanistan? Right? Right. Didn't work out for either one of us. So the Goodwill Games bridged those boycotts. It had been 10 years Mm -hmm. in between East-West Olympic competition. And we worked really closely with the Turner team. And Ted uh, was in St. Petersburg, Russia. We were there the whole summer for the 94 Goodwill Games. And the 98 Games in New York were a big success. And we had written that bid. So we didn't get the Olympics. We got a distant number two choice which sadly, through the mergers years later, they, they ruined the whole thing. The Goodwill Games, in my view, should still be around. Yeah, they're, they're not, right? When did they no, last? No, they bungled it completely. So let's get back to you. Uh, <laughs> great tenure at AOL, and then another great tenure 
at Nielsen. Yeah, I mean, I um, Nielsen was interesting. You know, I joined Nielsen because I was really intrigued by this notion of the role that Nielsen played as a referee in the industry and that that role had been so successful in television. So I just, I just want to take a step back for a second. We were talking about AOL Time Warner and this vision of this world of sort of cross-platform media that was you know, consumed easily and seamlessly. So that always intrigued me, you know, back at the days of what was then AOL Time Warner. And then even after that at AOL, I had a brief stint before I joined Nielsen as CEO of a company called Envision, which was also involved in putting together a lot of that cross-platform infrastructure. Envision had been the leading sales platform for television advertising, almost $13, $14 billion of television advertising went through it. It was used by NBC and a lot of the big cable companies to sell their advertising. And when I was CEO of Envision, we started to build out some of the pipes to cross-sell across TV and digital. It was a hard thing to do. That company was subsequently sold. It's part of MediaOcean now. But a lot of my career has been about sort of putting the media infrastructure together across digital and across television. So that brings me to measurement. So measurement, you know, you can build the infrastructure, but you still have to have common measurement across it. So I joined Nielsen to be the president of their media business because I was intrigued by what they had done in television, and I wanted to be a part of what they were doing to try to knit it together with digital. And so I was at Nielsen, you know, for five years. And this topic today of cross-media measurement... <laughs> A Why big, do things take issue. so long? Why do things take so long? Yeah. Can they crack this? Um, it's a complicated question. It is something that is, is fixable. Um, I think Nielsen has moved a little too slowly in trying to do it. Now, part of it was Nielsen's fault. Part of it was the fault of the industry. So to go back to television, and Niel we always said this when we were at Nielsen, it was not Nielsen that created sort of the measurement, you know, see, you know, um, that this sort of TV measurement was the TV industry that came together. It was the agencies that came together to really say, we want a common form of measurement and we're going to reach agreement on something. So it was that that happened in television. And then Nielsen was basically the provider of it. In the digital world, it's always been a lot harder to get agreement amongst all the parties. Um, particularly, it's just a more complex ecosystem than when it was, you know, when it was just television. There were just a few big agencies at the point. Now there's so many different players, so many different intermediaries. So that being said, it was hard to get consensus. And when I was at Nielsen, we had lots of meetings with the industry where we put everyone in a room and say, let's all figure out a common form of measurement. And you know what? They could never agree on anything. I used to say, these guys and these men and women, not just these guys, these men and women can't even agree on what to eat for lunch. I mean, it's like right. literally, so they have so many different interests. You put Google in a room with Facebook and you put NBC and, you know, YouTube. I mean, there are too many different interests in a room. And so I do think Nielsen could have done a better job, though, of just saying, you know, he... We're just going to come up with a measurement and getting a few key players to support it and also making some of the investments. Nielsen was slow to invest on the digital side. And by the time there, the need came up for digital measurement, Nielsen was sort of playing catch up. And that was an issue. You know, they, they should have invested ahead of 
you know, what was ultimately, anyone could see what was happening with digital consumption. You know, we know a lot of the players who are trying to lead on this issue globally, the World Federation of Advertisers, here in America, the ANA, the 4As, the IAB. And it does seem, and you referenced it, that in a lot of cases here that the, uh, what's that expression? The chicken is in the coop or the hen is in, you know, whatever. Well, you know, that I can't get the expression right, but you know what I'm trying to say. I mean, I do think the... The power is with the advertisers, you know, even more than the agencies. And you're right, the World Federation is being has been more vocal about this in recent years. But I actually think they haven't really been, been vocal enough on this issue. And I think the agencies are not as powerful as they once were. You know, their margins have increasingly been compressed. So I, I still think advertisers haven't been as vocal. Now, they've been really vocal on this Twitter issue, by the way, where they're all saying, hey, we don't want to be associated with Twitter. You know, we don't want to be alongside that content. I don't think they've been as quick on some of these other issues to do it. You know, one of the things that Nielsen, that when I was at Nielsen, people used to make fun of the Nielsen TV panel all the time, particularly the digital people. They would say, oh, that's just like a panel. It's just measuring a few thousand people. How can it be like representative? And everybody was like literally just shitting all over it. I mean, honestly. Um, but when I was at Nielsen, I came to see that was like the power that Nielsen had because that was Nielsen's data. That data wasn't owned by anybody else. It was Nielsen's data. And, and we took great pride in basically making sure that it was representative of the U.S. population. It was audited. There were all sorts of checks and balances against that panel. And we kept trying to grow it. And maybe we could have grown it more quickly. But what's happened in the digital world is that the media providers themselves, Google, Facebook, and others, they're the ones providing the data. And that's tricky because you could argue they're grading their own homework. Yeah, and we made a mistake so at Nielsen. We started, we cut deals with Google and Facebook and the other media, digital media companies to get their data. And that was a tricky thing because every time they gave us access to their data, they put some strings on it. And you would do it too. It's, you, know, you just want to make sure you're perceived the right way because what Nielsen should have done was to just expand that panel and just keep making that panel the biggest Independent. panel. Because they own the data. Right. Um, I mean, I got to tell you, when I was at Nielsen, the TV networks didn't like that Nielsen owned the panel. And, and we would routinely get calls. You'd wake, you know, you'd go into the office on a Wednesday and you'd get a call from Les Moonves at CBS saying, why was, did my show do so badly last night? Or you'd get a call from ABC or NBC and they would always complain because it wasn't their data and it was independent. And, and they sort of couldn't do anything about it. I mean, it was audited. It was, so I do think there was power in that. And Nielsen made a mistake by not focusing on growing the panel. Great, great stuff. And so, so uh, such a complex and things problem are getting worse. Today. And things are getting worse today, Matt, with connected TV. Um, with connected TV, what you're seeing now is a perpetuation of these sort of walled gardens that have existed in digital for a long time. You know, I mean, all of, all of the connected DV companies have a lot of data. They don't share it. They and don't share it. This is an area from a tech vantage point. It's a nice bridge to sort of the evolution of your career sitting on so many different corporate boards. This area of cross-media measurement and what the smart TV, connected TV, advanced TV ecosystem has yielded. It's a very rich thought leadership content area for us at Advertising Week. But this has created a whole new series of companies of and issues players. issues and challenges. 
the funny thing, because we've been talking about my career, is I've been talking about it for 25 years. 25 years ago, we started talking about this at AOL. We started talking about what could we do in terms of putting the technology together, the infrastructure together, then the measurement together to make it happen. And I didn't realize it was going to take so long. And we're right. still not there. And, you know, we can talk about connected TV right now, and it's not the greatest experience for advertisers. It's not. It's, I don't know if you've ever looked at, like, advertising on Hulu, but, you know, you, you often see the same ad running repeatedly. You see, you know, there's no frequency capping on the ads. It's not the greatest consumer experience. It's sort of an amazing thing that with everything that we have from a technology perspective, they can't get this right fascinating stuff we covered so much ground all right we're starting to <laughs> run up against it here we may have to i make told this, you we, we may could have go to make on. This i told a, you we could go on for six this, hours when you're as old as i am you could talk a, a long time parter no question so just to wrap what so we'll i'm call, happy to talk more about um you know we talk a lot of different advertising week events about this but you know we can do a whole sort of conference at advertising week just on thought leadership and connected TV. I think we are this, this, there's an inevitability here of a, a series with you. So let's talk about before we wrap the 98, the which 98 was the catalyst yes. for the, and I love the origin of the name. So if we could start there and then get into what you and I think joy co-founded joy together, Marcus, yes. you put a great group of leaders together. We were very proud and happy to have you and some of your colleagues on stage at advertising week in October. Absolutely. Uh, but let's talk about the yeah. 98. Oh, so first, Joy Marcus and I have been friends since Princeton. Um, we came together, um, and we were sort of unlikely friends of Princeton, me from this Italian Catholic background. She had come from a modern Orthodox Jewish family, and the two of us came together and worked together at Princeton, and both then had these careers in the media industry where we were repeatedly involved with supporting women leaders, and I talked about that. And... Several years ago, she was at Condé Nast. You know, I was still at Nielsen, and we started investing together in women-led businesses. And we formed a group called Brilliant Friends. Came, we brought women together, C-suite women together in the industry, and we started investing. And we got interested in doing this and decided we wanted to spin off a venture fund, which is the 98. Now, you asked about the name. We're called the 98 because women-led businesses in the U.S., only get 2% of venture capital dollars. And that's a number that has not changed significantly for something like 15 years. And so we're called the 98 because we want to create entree to the 98% of venture capital dollars that women are not currently getting. And that's why we're called the 98. And relatively new, but off to a flying start. We're doing great. And we, um, we've, you know, we're, uh, we're on our way to raising $10 million now. We're just a little bit short of that. And we've really brought together a lot of amazing people in the industry, particularly in the advertising and media industries who've come together, women and men, you know, to invest. And our mission is to invest in women-led businesses in technology. We're really focused on technology because technology is a big disruptor. Software is a big disruptor. It also can create really high investment returns. Um, the flip side, by the way, of women only getting 2% of venture capital dollars is that women-led businesses outperform. All of the data out there shows that women-led businesses outperform male-led businesses. So you have this dichotomy. Women aren't getting funded, yet they outperform. That's where the 98 comes in because we're going to be there to support those women. 
Um, the reason there is the dichotomy, by the way, goes back to the venture capital industry. When you look at the venture capital industry in the US, it's largely been a male industry. And when you look at the power in venture capital firms is on their investment committees, it's only a small minority of um, women, even today, sit on the big venture capital firms on the investment committees. I think it's like 13, 15% of women. And that's the reason that I believe women aren't getting funded, because the people making the decision aren't necessarily in the position to make that decision. So that's what we're trying to correct with the 98. We think it's an opportunity to correct really a market inefficiency. Um, we also think it's, frankly, a great investment opportunity since women-led businesses outperform. So we are off to a flying start, and we hope that we can be talking to you in a few years saying we're the biggest fund for women in technology. What, what, what a great story, and ties so many bits of your career together. Well, you too, Matt. We're all about tying different parts yeah, of our career no, together. Yeah, no, 100%. And um, going back to our early conversation about your early days, in the State Department in South Africa, you know, we're launching Advertising Week in Africa in February. And you're doing this Mandela. And the Mandela, the show, which couldn't be very excited about. And uh, the opportunities here around diversity are, I think, one of the most poorly understood parts of business and culture. We're working with the equivalent of the Harvard Business School in Johannesburg, which is the Gibbs School, the Gordon School for Business. At uh, It's part of the University of Pretoria in Johannesburg. And we're working with them and a number of other universities across the continent and across the world. And the whole premise of what we're doing is the business case for diversity. And in that case, it's with an orientation towards the black race. But it also is applicable towards the female gender. Absolutely. And look, and I really appreciate what you've done over the years at Advertising Week to shed a light on this issue. I mean, the different awards that you give, the different panels that you've done. You've really been one of the first people that did this in the industry. So we're very grateful. Well, thank you. I, listen, I, I appreciate that uh, most humbly. And, and one of the things I say tongue-in-cheek, because it, it can be taken the wrong way, but we've been at this since before it became popular recently. Seems like a lot of people have tried to find religion the last few years around DEI and gender equality. But I like to think that we were in there, in fact, as you said, you know, quite some time ago. And to me, it's an obvious place for us to be. And sadly, there's still more work to be done. But, you know, as I always say, that doesn't mean we shouldn't do the work. Like we should do the yeah. work to make it happen. On the gender issue, which is what the 98 mm -hmm. is focused on. Where do you think we'll be in two, three, four years? So I think we will make progress. The progress, look, I was in, we talked about my career. I was in the first classes of women at Princeton. I think I was in the ninth class of women that were admitted to Princeton. And we were told back then, 1978, I'm sad to say, that the world was going to change and be a much more equal place. And I still can't believe we're still having discussions about you know, gender inequality in 2022, when I've literally been talking about this for 40 years now, um, actually longer, uh, I think we just have to keep fighting the fight. I think we're making a little bit of progress each time. I'm hoping that with things like the 98, we can accelerate the pace. And it's not only the 98, there's all sorts of initiatives happening and that, you know, that will move the pace forward. I look at my daughter and I think, you know, we have to do a better job. And again, it's not only for women, it's for underrepresented minorities. As you said, it's for, it's for all that. So we just have to keep fighting the fight, all of us. 
But net net, the businesses that are female led are better businesses, and that's a pretty compelling statement. Yeah, we got to teach some of some male leaders about what women leaders know. So. Oh, great! Well, that's a great way to wrap. <laughs> mm-hmm. Thank you so much for doing this. An absolute joy. Well, thank joy. you so much. Thank you so much. 